Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of My Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion of Union General George Henry Thomas. Now, we ended up the last episode after the miraculous attack of Thomas's army against Missionary Ridge in the Chattanooga campaign. His army of the Cumberland had spontaneously scaled the heights and routed Braxton Bragg's army of Tennessee. The Confederate army was all but broken up with thousands captured. The force might have been completely destroyed if not for the efforts of General Patrick Claiborne's division to hold off Sheridan and Hooker's forces after the rout. Because of Claiborne's efforts, most of the rebel army escaped to Tennessee, uh, from Tennessee into North Georgia, where they would spend the winter in relative safety. After the Chattanooga campaign, General Thomas spent the winter in camp at the base of Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge. He stayed with his army throughout the winter and did not go home to visit his wife. During this time, one of his corps commanders, Oliver Otis Howard, asked Thomas why he didn't visit home. He answered, quote, Oh, I cannot leave. Something is sure to get out of order if I go away from my command, unquote. Thomas remained obsessed with preparation, and he wanted his command to be ready for the spring campaign in Georgia. During the winter, it was Thomas who conceived the idea of a national cemetery to be laid out on Orchard Knob, just south of Chattanooga. When asked if the men should be buried by state of origin, he said, quote, No, 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 mix them up, mix them up. I'm tired of states' rights, unquote. This came from a Southerner who had had enough of states' rights demagoguery that resulted in war. By now, Thomas was a name known by all American households because of Chickamauga and Missionary Ridge. As one of his fellow officers noted, quote, He had not at any time lost a movement or a battle from Mill Springs to Chattanooga, unquote. The country spoke his name with universal acclaim. Now, following the Chattanooga campaign on March 18th of 1864, Grant was promoted to General-in-Chief of the Union Army, after which William Tecumseh Sherman was given command of the Western forces previously under Grant's command. This included Thomas's Army of the Cumberland. On the Confederate side, Grant was relieved of command after the rout of his army at Missionary Ridge. Joseph E. Johnston was named to replace him, and was tasked with reconstituting the Army of Tennessee in Dalton, Georgia. The Army retained its name, the Army of Tennessee, even though Tennessee was now firmly in the hands of the Union Army. During the winter, the the Confederates brought in reinforcements and built the Army back up to fighting strength of about 50,000 men under arms. Now, this number did not include the tens of thousands of slaves who labored to build fortifications, who served as cooks, teamsters, and performed many other tasks required to keep the rebel army in fighting trim. I'd like to pause for a brief moment to talk about naming conventions. I'm sure you've noticed that by 1864, most, if not all, Union armies were named after rivers. For example, the Army of the Potomac, the Cumberland, the Tennessee, the Ohio, etc. By contrast, Confederate armies were generally named after states, or portions of states. For example, the armies of Northern Virginia, Tennessee, as well as Mississippi, Kentucky, Missouri, etc. The Confederate Army's naming convention makes sense if you consider their stated reason for secession, states' rights. So naming their armies after states was not surprising. Of course, most historians consider the states' rights argument to have been a red herring, 
but that's a topic for another podcast. The reason I mention this issue is because there are two opposing armies in the upcoming campaign which have almost the same name. The Confederates' primary Western Army was called the Army of Tennessee, named after the state. One of the three Union armies to participate in the upcoming campaign was the Army of the Tennessee, named after the Tennessee River. This army, having been under Sherman's command, was now under the command of James Birdsey McPherson and will play a huge role in the upcoming campaign. Now back to our story. The Western Union armies, now under Sherman, collected large quantities of provisions, munitions, and other stores at Chattanooga, which now became their new forward base. They were about to step off on the famous Atlanta campaign as we know it now. All the troops destined for this new campaign into Georgia were ordered to concentrate from their various winter camps into Chattanooga on April the 27th. Grant's plan was to place pressure on all Confederate forces in the East and the West simultaneously with a goal of ending the war in 1864 if possible. This was a deadly serious objective because everyone knew 1864 was an election year and Lincoln's re-election and the fate of the nation would depend on the results. Grant's eastern objective was to capture Richmond and destroy Robert E. Lee's army in the process. Sherman's western objective was to push into Georgia and destroy Joseph E. Johnson's army in the process. Now let's talk about the Atlanta campaign. As was just mentioned, Sherman's advance on Atlanta was part of Grant's overall design for winning the war. He had instructed Sherman to, quote, move against Johnston's army, break it up, and get into the interior as far as you can, inflicting all the damage you can against their war resources, unquote. As will be seen, Sherman gradually became so obsessed with the final provision of his mission, which to him meant the capture of Atlanta, that Johnston's army was actually not destroyed. Instead, Johnston's rebel army would survive to create further trouble, which Thomas would be called upon later to mop up. By May 6th, Sherman's armies were ready to march into Georgia as a combined army group. Sherman's armies consisted of the Army of the Cumberland under George Thomas, the smaller Army of the Tennessee under James B. McPherson, and the much smaller Army of the Ohio under John Schofield. Sherman's planned method of using his armies was brilliant, in my opinion. He used George Thomas's Army of the Cumberland as the Jupiter, the centerpiece of the entire movement from Chattanooga to Atlanta. Thomas's army of 60,000-plus men would be the core of the advance. His Army of the Cumberland would be, would be providing logistic support, engineering, railroad building. They would manage the telegraph lines, and they would provide intelligence. The other two Union armies, the Tennessee and the Ohio, were much smaller with 24,000 and 14,000 men, respectively. These Union armies would act as satellites for the Army of the Cumberland. Since they were smaller, they were more maneuverable than Thomas's army, so they could be positioned quickly for flanking movements and rapid advances when needed, and they would be well used by Sherman.
Johnston's Confederate Army of Tennessee was positioned at Dalton, Georgia, just to the east of the Johns Mountain Range. They were in an excellent defensive position on Rocky Face Ridge in a straight line facing west. Sherman had no interest of assailing this formidable position head-on. Now, during the winter, through extensive reconnaissance of the Confederate position, General Thomas had discovered a way to get behind Johnston's rebel army in their Dalton position and trap them in a pincer. This move would isolate them from Atlanta and their railroad supply lines and allow for the possible capture of the entire rebel army. Thomas and his scouts had discovered a gap in the mountain range just south and west of Dalton called Snake Creek Gap. And if a Union force was sent through that gap into Resaca, they could get behind the Confederate army and trap them between two Union armies. Naturally, Thomas thought his Army of the Cumberland was the right choice to execute this flanking move, but Sherman disagreed. Sherman liked Thomas's plan, but thought Thomas's army was too large to pull off this move through the narrow passes of Snake Creek Gap. So Sherman adopted the flanking move as his own, but decided to have McPherson's smaller Army of the Tennessee execute the plan. So, on May 7th, Sherman began his advance into Georgia in earnest by sending McPherson's Army of the Tennessee to move along through Snake Creek Gap to sever Johnston's rail communications. He would do this while Thomas's Army of the Cumberland made heavy determined demonstrations on Johnston's front at Rocky Face Ridge, and while Schofield's small Army of the Ohio moved south to attack the Confederate right flank. McPherson passed through the gap on the 9th and drove the rebel brigade into Resaca into its defenses. But instead of pushing through to Resaca and cutting Johnston's rail line, he withdrew back to the gap. For reasons unknown to history, McPherson did not follow through with the planned flanking move, and Johnston's army was saved. Perhaps McPherson didn't believe his force was strong enough and their separation from the rest of the Union forces made them feel vulnerable. Whatever the case, through overcaution, an excellent chance to destroy Johnston's army was lost. Sherman's first remark to McPherson when they later met was, quote, Well, Mac, you have missed the great opportunity of your life, unquote. We don't know McPherson's reason, reasoning because, unfortunately, he would be killed just two months later, just outside of Atlanta. Now, on May 18th, Johnston saw his vulnerability after the attempted flanking move and withdrew quickly the the entire rebel army south of Resaca and established another excellent fortified position. His army continued to grow to about 65,000 men. Sherman ordered Thomas and Schofield to press the Confederates at Resaca at their position, attacking them frontally while he sent another flanking column south to cross the Ustanala River at Lays Ferry. The Battle of Resaca resulted in significant casualties on both sides, and Johnston again retreated to avoid being flanked. He moved just south of Cassville on the 18th, where he saw an opportunity to destroy Schofield's army before they could be supported by Thomas or McPherson. Schofield's Army of Ohio was isolated on the far left of Sherman's forces, and Confederate General John Bell Hood was ordered to strike Schofield's flank. However, Hood was, when he was about to do this, he became aware that Thomas's cavalry under McCook 
had gotten into his rear. He had no idea how large the force that was that was behind him, so he lost his nerve and began sending panic messages to Johnston that they were being flanked. Instead of attacking Schofield's flank, he turned his corps north to face McCook. This gave Schofield just enough time to catch up with the rest of Sherman's columns, and so the opportunity to crush Schofield passed. During this time, my ancestor Elijah Jones was serving in Hood's corps in the Alabama artillery. Now, after this incident, Johnston felt he had no choice but to fall back south of Cassville and then on to the Altoona, Alatoona Pass. Sherman's armies were now across two of the three major rivers between Chattanooga and Atlanta, with one left to go, the Chattahoochee. He had lethal momentum and now possessed the rebel ironworks at Rome and Cartersville. Sherman's forces rested at Kingston for three days, while Thomas's engineers repaired the railroads north of their position. The Union Army filled their wagons with 20 days of supplies. Sherman had no intention of assaulting Johnston's strong position again at Alatoona. Instead, on May 23rd, he cut loose from his supply railroad, as Grant had done in Vicksburg, and initiated a grand flanking maneuver toward Dallas, Georgia. Johnston quickly got wind of this move and rushed to another excellent defensive position at New Hope Church to block him. Now, the New Hope, New Hope Church battle started on May 25th and was a relatively small one in which one Confederate division under Stuart was able to hold off three of Thomas's divisions under Joe Hooker in a muddy rainstorm. It was remembered by the soldiers as particularly brutal due to the conditions and the heavy, confused fighting. The result was that Sherman's columns were blocked from flanking Johnston's army. However, Johnston was nevertheless forced to pull back to a new defensive position north of Kennesaw Mountain. Against this new position, Thomas's army held the center, as always, and on June the 15th, his forces broke through Johnston's works on the east side of Pine Hill. He then pushed his army across Mud Creek Valley and Noses Creek under fire as Kennesaw Mountain loomed to their front. All of this happened in the, in the continuous driving rain. According to Oliver Otis Howard, quote, Sturdy, unretiring, uncomplaining, Thomas pushed Johnston Center so hard every hour, every day, that Schofield and McPherson could in turn after turn play upon his flanks and Johnston had to keep his center there to be pounded, unquote. Another officer wrote, quote, But whenever and wherever you saw him, they knew that all was right, and they read in his fixed countenance the resolve that was always the harbinger of victory, unquote. During the time of these engagements, the Confederate, Confederate Army constructed some completely impregnable fortifications on the summit of Kennesaw Mountain, making use of the aforementioned thousands of slave labor, laborers. Johnston now fell back on these fortifications to await Sherman's next move. Now, the Kennesaw Mountain battle was the most significant frontal assault of the Atlanta campaign. Johnston's rebel army occupied the heights behind perfectly built breastworks, and Sherman decided to attack them. 
Now, Thomas knew the folly of this decision and had instead proposed another flanking move to be executed by James McPherson. This time, he suggested McPherson sweep past and attack Marietta from the north, which would force Johnston to expose his flank in order to oppose the move. This would not be. Sherman ordered in an all-out frontal assault to begin on June the 27th after a heavy artillery bombardment. Perhaps he believed a breakthrough might rout Johnston's army in the same way Thomas had routed Bragg at Missionary Ridge, but it didn't turn out that way. A Confederate soldier vividly recalled from the opposing side the following, quote, A solid line of blue came up my hill. My pen is unable to describe the scene of carnage that ensued in the next two hours. Column after column of Federal soldiers were crowded upon that line, No sooner would a regiment mount our works than they were shot down or surrendered, yet still they came. Thomas and McPherson sent wave after wave against the rebel breastworks, only to be repelled with heavy losses. Early in the afternoon, Sherman asked General Thomas, Do you think we can carry any part of the enemy's line today? Thomas replied that the rebel works were, quote, exceedingly strong, in fact so strong that they cannot be carried by assault except by immense sacrifice, even if they were carried at all, unquote. He went on to say, quote, one or two more such assaults would use up this army, unquote. Meanwhile, while the Confederates were preoccupied with Thomas and McPherson, Schofield's small Union force on the far right was making demonstrations against the Confederates at Kennesaw Mountain. They found little resistance, and Schofield exploited this by pushing part of his force some two miles around to the rebel rear. This threatened Johnston's line of retreat if the advantage were fully exploited. Johnston seized on this immediately and moved McPherson's hard-marching army around to the right to spearhead this turning movement. On July 2nd, McPherson's force began to move in earnest, and Johnston was forced either to attack Thomas in the open field or retreat. They chose to retreat with Thomas's Army of the Cumberland hot on their heels. The Union force, forces broke free uh, from their railroad supply source to pursue the Confederates who had entrenched on the north bank of the Chattahoochee within sight of Atlanta. Again, the Federals would outflank Johnston, and this time they would finally be across the Chattahoochee River, which was the last major water barrier between them and Atlanta. This was done with Schofield's army in an aggressive and risky move upriver from the Confederates. James Lee Donahoe wrote wrote the following about the historic river crossing. On July 8, at half past three in the afternoon, Schofield struck. He took the rebels totally by surprise. By night, he was on the high ground beyond, strongly entrenched, with two good pontoon bridges finished, and was prepared, if necessary, to resist an assault by a large enemy force. It was probably the best piece of work that Schofield contributed during the entire campaign, and it was accomplished without the loss of a single man. 
Now soon the entire Union force was across the Chattahoochee, and Johnston had no choice but to retreat his army back to the fortifications of Atlanta. Now while this was happening, John Bell Hood had been writing letters and lobbying for command of the rebel army behind Johnston's back. Even though on more than a few occasions Hood had actually been the Confederate commander who urged Johnston to fall back and not to attack, now he claimed that his commander was too timid and needed to be replaced. So on July 18th, he got his wish. He was now in command, and Johnston was relieved. Hood made plans to attack Sherman's army at once. He was actually using uh, a plan Johnston had devised to catch the federal columns as they crossed Peachtree Creek just north of Atlanta. So as the Union armies crossed the creek, they were separated from each other by several miles. And this time, Thompson, Thomas's army of the Cumberland was on the right, uh, far right, uh, closest to Atlanta. He sent Howard's corps over to the left to close the gap, and Hood took advantage of this separation to attack Thomas. Benson Bobrick wrote the following. At 3 p.m., two hours later than Hood had planned, the Confederates suddenly burst upon the heads of the Union column, and the battle at once became hot. Quote, yelling like furies, like wild beasts let loose, unquote. The rebels poured out of the woods and covered the open ground in front. The attack was made in echelon from right to left, with orders for each division, upon reaching the creek, to sweep downstream. Wherever the rebels were found entrenched, their works were to be taken by fixed bayonets. Thomas commanded in person within close range of of enemy fire, Over the course of two hours, three rebel assaults were thrown back. At one pivotal moment, he helped turn up an artillery battery to thwart a rebel attack and direct fire from his horse. This was the turning point of the battle, as the Confederates were repulsed. Sherman was with Schofield and had no idea Thomas was being attacked, but Thomas' units were able to hold off repeated attacks from Hood's much larger force until they withdrew at nightfall. Hood's losses in killed, wounded, and captured were were nearly 5,000. Thomas had lost only a fraction of that number. Now, among the Confederate soldiers wounded in the Battle of Peachtree Creek was my ancestor, he was shot in the hip with a mini-ball fired by one of Thomas's men during this fight. I know this because I have the paperwork he filed with the U.S. government in 1906 in which he requested a pension for wounded soldiers. And from what I can gather, the pension was granted, even though he was fighting for an enemy force when he received the wound. Lincoln's second inaugural address called for the country to treat the rebellious states, quote, with malice toward none and charity for all, unquote. I know my family was grateful for the sentiment, and over time, the nation's wounds would eventually be bound up. By 1906, my ancestor was an old man and a Baptist preacher in his local community of Walnut Grove, Mississippi. Now tune in next time as we continue our discussion of Union General George Henry Thomas. Mm-hmm.